0: Life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. Soren Kierkegaard. He's kind of crazy. She's a little insane. Keeping Kennedy G really messes with his brain. One is divorced, the other's husband is dead. That's why it's so messed up in the head. It's a silver linings play cast. Oh yeah! What is up, everybody? It's Jamie Ward, and this is the Silver Linings Playcast. As far as I know, it is the only podcast that is devoted to the movie Silver Linings Playbook and the Silver Linings Playbook, the book. I know I say that different ways sometimes, but that's the way we said it this week. Uh, welcome, welcome. We are looking at having a full episode this week. We have basically been on hiatus for about the last two months. <laughs> we've been working, we've been fighting our way back through, and I want to say, actually, um, I'm probably in no condition to be doing a full episode this week. I am an absolute mess right now. However, however, uh, I, I've i had some time to think about some things, and one of those things is, uh, well, the different kinds of sad right? I, there's, there's two major kinds of, of sadness I get. And one, uh, you guys might relate to. Um, I think there's more different kinds and we'll talk about that. But one of them I get is just if something bad happens, uh, I will often, I often get down and feel sad about it, but I will get very motivated to overcome the sadness and get myself back, you know, operating, working, doing whatever, you know, to get up all back off on the horse after you fall off. Uh, the other kind of depression I go through is, is more of just like this, this overbearing total, uh, like full spectrum sadness that we will get into in just a moment. But the reason I bring that up is my realization was that, uh, sometimes, I, I've been doing basically nothing for the last, I don't, I don't even know how to count. You guys know when the last episode was, it was a real episode, but I was realizing why am I not focusing the efforts of, of me not wanting to do anything, uh, into literally not doing anything when I should be at least going through the motions of things I like to do like creating this podcast, so we are going to work on that. One of the interesting things that I realized, and I thought about this, I even thought about it uh, one week ago, and that was, should I watch the movie Silver Linings Playbook? I haven't seen the movie Silver Linings Playbook since probably mm, four months or longer. I don't know, the last time that we uh, had an episode where I was actually watching along and narrating with... With the podcast, that was the last time that I watched Silver Linings Playbook Uh, since then. um, And I don't watch it every week, right? I watch it a lot more than most people because it was one of my favorite movies. But I'm not saying that I actually sit around and watch Silver Linings Playbook every day. That's ridiculous. But when I, I realized that I was sort of in a depressive mood, and the funny thing is... I've been in it for weeks and sometimes like I didn't even realize I was in it. You just sort of realize you're not doing the things you used to do. Um, and so I, you know, I, I realized I was, it's like I woke up one day and I looked around and I was like, Oh, I've woken up the exact same way uh, at the wrong time and, and have accomplished nothing in weeks. I'm in the middle of, one of these cycles. Now I, I did some research on what are the like actual different kinds of sadness that people experience, but I'm so I'm curious, uh you guys, when you guys get sad, do you do you recognize different types of depression in yourselves or that you experience? And when you get in those moods, do you like to watch and listen to and read happy things? that really go exactly against what you're feeling and try to lift yourself out of them? Or do you like to watch dark and depressing things that sort of justify your worldview, right? I made the observation about myself over my lifetime that I was saying I have those two different sad moods. Uh, sometimes, like if I go through an event or something that's sad, but I know that I'll... Uh, get over it because there's usually a cause that I can identify, and um i'll I'll have a lot more positive outlook long term, even though I exist in the sadness, I'll still have a goal of like I want to get out of this and I want to do things and I want to do something and so I will often watch a lot of sports movies or romantic comedies, basically just positive things to get my my mindset out of of being depressed myself. Or something, or just uh, like liking watching characters and listening to happy music that makes me try to remind myself of what it is to feel good. Right now, when I get in the other mood, and I can't. Sometimes I don't even know I'm in it. And I will watch a lot of really depressing things. Things about crazy people, uh, like a lot of prison movies, uh, war movies, but not like the ones with happy endings about heroes, more of like the, oh, the pointlessness, more, a lot of existential uh, things I will watch. And we'll get into that a little bit later, which, which actually poses this really weird and interesting question. Now, where does the movie Silver Linings Playbook fall on the spectrum of, is it a happy movie or is it a sad movie? It, It might actually be the perfect film for me. In this case, and I probably could have watched it, but I just, like, I, the ending is a little too sappy for me and the mood that I was in. One of the reasons I think I'm drawn to this movie, uh, I, I'm try. I was trying to work out when I first watched it. I watched it on DVD. I watched it when it was in Redbox. Currently, we've talked about that. So it was, it would probably be somewhere between 2012 and 2013 that I, that I saw it. The first time. Now, I think one of the reasons I really like this movie is that it's basically uh, a love story with crazy people. And I've always felt uh, myself, I've, I've had this pointed out to me recently by one of my friends who told me that I would really like Mad Men before I started watching Mad Men. <laughs> uh, that I am a person that does not feel worthy of being loved in my lifetime, and so I think I have, that is one of the reasons why I have subconsciously really enjoyed movies over and stories over the course of my life, in which characters that are deeply personally flawed have found happy endings, silver linings, if you will. Uh, I like um like like Charles Dickens novels. Uh, I haven't really read any, but I'm sure if I did. That's the kind of thing that I would really love. We've talked about how I don't read a lot. Uh, surprisingly, I have not liked certain things. Did not like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I, that was one of the few books that I remember trying to read for a little school. I like The Great Gatsby, one of my favorite books, and that that's an interesting book because it it's uh, it feels cheery, like aesthetically it's it's about parties and people living lavishly and and yet it's a very, very tragic personal story and it comes it's told from the uh, narrator's view point of view as this sort of objective person watching this story unfold in front of him from the outside and even even just in perspective of the story, it sort of reinforces the tragedy as you watch this, um, This just sort of like classic tale of people that will ultimately never be happy, even though they're living happy lives. One of my favorite movies that has come out over the last couple years, A Star is Born, the fourth iteration. Also, the fourth iteration, if you're not counting versions that are not called A Star is Born, but basically um, also Country Strong was A Star is Born. The Bodyguard. Was kind of a Star Is Born. Bull Durham is a Star Is Born with a happy ending. Uh, I and I always think that a Star Is Born is totally misrepresented with how it sells itself. I remember having over I, the first time I watched any of them was after this latest one with Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga came out, and I I watched it in theaters cause I was going to the movies, but, uh, something I love to do. Um, I would randomly go on like Tuesday nights at, for, for 10 o'clock shows, just so I could have the theater all to myself and watch movies. And so I was watching a lot of movies at that point, And that was just one of the ones that was out. I heard it was really good. So I went to see it and, and I, if you're an entertainer and you have not seen it, if you're any type of entertainer, watch it. All the all the iterations of it have have like you know, people looking longingly into each other's eyes on the cover. That is not what the movie is about. There is a love story that sort of takes place, but it is just this classic, classic, and I mean, uh, just a f- timeless story of in- the entertainment industry. Um, It's something bigger than that too. It's about, it's, it's about aging and, and dreamers and basically people, two people meeting each other at different points in their career. It does not matter what the career is. That is why I'm saying bull Durham is the exact same story as, um, what are we talking about here? (laughs) The star is born. That's right. Uh, Okay so i have been watching a lot of uh sad things so, sort of dark dark things and depressing things the the weird thing is i actually will tend to watch uh, horror movies and sort of see them as more positive like i enjoy horror because uh, and a lot of people do i hear like during, uh, at war we watched a lot of horror movies in our downtime because i think I think it really simplifies the world where you sort of put a face on on these negative things, fear and and violence, and you personify it in a monster or a killer. And even though they can be just gratuitously gory, and and are supposed to be sort of like slasher picks that 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 are glorifying violence or suspense or thrilling you, uh, they they are a very calming sort of oversimplification of of different just like fundamental human feelings, fear personified, uh, you know, anthropomorphologically into creatures or circumstances and people deal with them. Uh, You know, there's, there's horror movies where not everybody dies at the end or, or sometimes they do, but in, in some odd way, it's very calming to see, see what, um, you know, we, we deal with like the craziness of the real world where you just have somebody running from a monster that represents the unknown, uh, death, um, chaos and stuff. And it's just a much simpler way to rationalize the world, which is why I watch a lot of horror movies when I am depressed. Now I was just talking about where does silver linings playbook fall on the spectrum. If you take away the ending, all right, that they get together at the end, that is a successful romance and love story. um, Could it actually be a really great film to watch when I'm, depressed. Uh, maybe, I don't know. I'm not out of the woods yet, so maybe I'll have a chance to give it a watch. I've thought about it. I'm probably closer to the mindset where I would enjoy watching it, but I've got a lot of other stuff on my list right now that I've been burning through. Uh, we talked about last week, um, the beasts of the Southern wild, which was a way more uplifting than I thought it was and actually made me feel really good. I love that movie. It was wonderful. So. What kind of sadness am I actually dealing with? I don't know. So I, I identified my own uh, type of sadness. You know, I, I categorized it into two different kinds of ways that I looked at it. But I looked up what are, are the five major uh, clinical uh, definitions or, or, or sad conditions that people experience. And here, let's go through them real quick. There is major depressive disorder. 7% of the adult population suffers from that. It is an overwhelming depression. For more than two weeks at a time, it affects all aspects of a person's life, work, home, relationships, friendships. This is generally what people think of when they say I'm depressed in in a in a larger sense more than just like, oh, I'm having a day where I'm kind of depressed. Today. I was trying to figure out, is that what mine is? I went to a a psychologist Earlier this year, I remember the pandemic had just started. I don't remember when it was, but I I know because it was really empty when I went to the appointment. So it had to have been like April or May when I got a uh, big diagnosis of things that I've been suffering from from the last decade. And I don't have my charts and I don't remember what they put, but they put a lot of stuff (laughs) on my sheet apparently I'm suffering from way more things than I thought I was. I should probably look that stuff up at some point, uh, is, but anyway, uh, major depressive disorder might've been on it. I don't remember, but the, the symptoms it says, uh, affects all aspects of life, my personal life, work life, home relationships, friendships. Well, here's the weird thing, right? I've, I have been depressed for the last couple of months and I just basically, stop talking to everybody and doing doing everything i quit my jobs uh i did not talk to any of my friends i i still i still and i am sorry guys you all are wonderful you have reached out to check that i was alive and some of you i have uh started slowly responding and saying i'm sorry that i didn't talk to y'all um as live a few of you i have actually uh talked to a little more significantly than just sending a text saying that I was alive and some of you I have or not. Um and and so I just want you to know I am uh alive. Um so I the depression I've been suffering really did not affect my friendships because I didn't talk to any of y'all right. I quit my jobs, so it did not affect my work at all. I stayed home the whole time, so did not affect my home life. So I'm probably not suffering from major depressive disorder. The next kind is called adjustment disorder, and this is suffered by 10 to 30% of the adult population in America. Uh, This is um, another very common type and adjustment disorder is the depression that is related to a specific event or circumstances too. So this is not one of those, this is is not the kind of sadness that just sort of is pervasive and comes out of nowhere. Uh, If you experience a trauma or something that makes you sad, this this is usually a shorter term. Uh, It's usually diagnosed within uh, three to six weeks from the event happening, I believe. And then it usually can last on average anywhere from uh, one to several months, but it will also typically go away uh, within six months. I also should make note, um, I am not a medical professional. I have not studied any psychology at all. This is basically information that I looked up and I am just putting out some general information so we're all on the same page so we can understand the conversation we were having about depression. I know a lot of depressed people and people that suffer from all different types of uh, mental disorders and stuff. If you guys need help, definitely call some other number, Probably not mine. I'm not super reliable, as you guys (laughs) probably have known from the last couple of months. Um, I don't know any of the numbers off the top of my head because I refuse to call them myself. One time I did call the uh, crisis hotline for combat vets specifically, for the military. And the woman that got on the phone with me asked, are you a combat veteran? I did not want to say I was a combat veteran. I just wanted to say I was a veteran. So I said, no, I am not. I did not see combat. And she said, I'm sorry. This line is for combat vets only. You need to call someone else. And she did not give me the number for anybody else. Uh, I think that worker is highly irresponsible. You know, I I understand the importance of setting up different lines for specific different circumstances, especially uh, people that can understand some of the nuanced symptoms uh, and c- about conditions that are directly related to having been in combat or traumatic events. But if somebody calls a crisis line, you should probably be prepared to have some kind of conversation with that person because it is, in fact, a crisis potentially beyond just saying you called the wrong number. You need to find another number Anyway. That is not important now because that was a while ago. Okay, the next kind of depression is called atypical depression, and it is actually one of the most common types of depression despite being called atypical. Atypical basically referring to the fact that there is not a specific cause of it necessarily. It might be the underlying chemical response in your brain, some kind of wiring neurological or something. Uh, But it is really when people think of, of like you're clinically depressed and you might not have a reason specifically for it other than just chemicals or mental uh, brain wiring. That's generally considered atypical depression. And that is often uh, requiring more medical treatment Than like the, the one I just talked, Oh no. And I skipped one, uh, persistent depressive disorder, which is suffered by approximately 2% of the adult population. Persistent depressive disorder is a lower intensity, but more persistent type of depression. Uh, it's sort of one of those where it's like, and I'm not saying that it's not a real or dangerous one, but like it, people tend to be uh, less affected. It's, it's more of like that, oh, I have this feeling like if you wake up every day and you just have a hard time going through the day thinking about things that might be persistent depressive disorder. Uh, they say that this one is usually best treated through talk therapy more than chemicals or, or medication and because it is sort of like a, it may have more to do with like outlook on life than an actual uh, chemical imbalance. Uh, I'm saying that I don't know. Every situation is different, specific. You can also have multiple ones of these at the same time, but there is different uh, psychological names for each of them to represent different things and causes because that can affect the potential treatment. Uh, and so the fifth most common type of depression, seasonal affective disorder. And this is right around the time that that one would be happening. And this is often because of the the changing, um, like the uh, daylight savings time changing. uh, The the light, uh, the amount of light you get goes down. Uh, Circadian rhythms are affected. Lack of sunlight. These things can make people feel sad and it usually goes away uh, after a while, after you get used to the seasonal change uh i also typically have a really bad time around november um uh this is around the anniversary of when one of my best friends died too uh it happened right around thanksgiving i'm about like 2 days after uh the thanksgiving of the year it happened um there is uh, actually a psychological uh term called the anniversary effect, which is where the anniversary of specific events can bring up different types of depression or or basically re-aggravate symptoms that you have associated with those things, even when you are not aware that the date on the calendar is coming up, because there may be other things you associate with it. Like I know uh, when he died, it was such a shock and it was right in the middle of the holiday season. So even though I don't think of it as like, Oh, my buddy Eric died in November. Uh, the fact that maybe holiday music starts ramping up or I know that people start talking about getting together for the holidays. uh, those are the type of things that can subconsciously bring back and affect your attitude and mood and those things. I don't know what's going on (laughs) with me. There's, uh, well, there's, a bunch of different things all happening at the same time, not to mention this is the worst year uh, of, of a lot of things. It's not actually the worst year. There's just a, a uh, confluence. That's not really the word I want to use, but a lot of things that happen to happen at the same time. And many of them that I don't want to admit I'm, I'm a person that highly compartmentalizes my experiences and will be in, in denial of things. And I think I've been putting off dealing with uh, uh, a couple big things from this year, too. One of them being I basically had my dream job. And well, almost, almost so close, basically, to the point where I thought it was going to happen, And, um, I've been just cheerily ignoring the fact that basically one of the greatest opportunities of my life has just been crumbling over the last couple months and, and all but disappeared. And I, and it leaves me with a lot of lack of direction about what am I going to do? I had a pretty significant birthday this year. Um, there's a couple of things that have always been sort of like these safety, safety goals in the back, back hip pocket that I felt like I could always do. If life ever got too bad, I could do several of them and they are no longer options. So let's, what I want to do now is actually tie this back in to something we have not talked about in weeks. And that is the silver linings playbook. What was Pat Solitano? Pat is from the book, Suffering From. If you have watched the movie and or read the book, I'd love to hear what your opinion is because um, his actual condition is never specified in the book. Now, if you go to the Wikipedia page for uh, Silver Linings Playbook, the movie, it, it references... Couple articles, including one from the Washington Post, and they're mostly film reviews, giving brief overviews of what the story is and it being based on the book. So the Wikipedia page entry says, and I'll, I'll quote, notably, while Pat's condition is never specified in the novel, one can infer from both his narrative about his memories and other events as they unfold that he suffers from traumatic brain injury. While Pat in the novel could have bipolar disorder as well, this is never specified as it is in the film. Now, in the in the film, they really paint a picture of him having bipolar disorder. He probably has several things. And I've had conversations with people that are uh, familiar with the, the film and the book. And a lot of people agree that he's definitely sort of painted as, as being like a having ups and downs. He gets very excited about having, uh, you know, the positivity of, he's going to get back with his ex wife. And then he goes through fits of rage and stuff. He, he, you know, he'll, he'll be excited that he's reading his ex wife's reading, summer reading curriculum her high school reading curriculum. And then all of a sudden, uh, he flips out in the movie because he's reading a farewell to arms. And then, you know, he thinks the book is super depressing. They're, There's a 2018 article from Psychological Psychology Today by Glenn Sullivan, PhD, who actually has a kind of interesting take. He goes, um, all these characters are neurotic, of course, but that that Pat is not suffering from bipolar disorder. Uh, and, and he says this because there's no discrete episodes of mania lasting a week or longer or major depression lasting two weeks or more. He actually has this theory that this was all made up because if you remember the plot, what happens is Pat attacks, Uh, he he physically assaults the uh, other teacher that is having an affair with his wife, Nikki. And so Glenn Sullivan, PhD from Psychology Today, uh, says that it was probably a legal move to base. So he could go to, um, basically get committed instead of being charged with assault or something, but that he actually doesn't display clinical symptoms of having bipolar disorder. This could also be a case of the movie, um, just giving sort of like the Hollywood version of bipolar disorder, uh, a, a, I have a good friend that I met a couple years ago who has diagnosed bipolar and you know, it, he, um, he does comedy about it and it's very interesting. It was really interesting sort of meeting him. Uh, we, we lived on the road for basically 16 weeks, almost straight with a couple breaks in between and just to, to see and learn that, um, it's not as abstract as of TV and movies often depict it. Right, uh, th- that he and the big thing that people never talk about in, in bipolar disorder—they always use that to, you know, when they talk about bipolar disorder, you focus on people sort of flipping out and having these random fits of depression that come out of nowhere, uh, apparently clinically lasting two weeks or longer at a time. But my friend, who I'm not going to mention by name, but I would am um, hoping to have him on this podcast eventually sometime. Uh, it is the mania which I was I learned about while living on the road with him. And if you're not familiar, mania is the opposite of depression. It is like uh, uh, sort of a, a euphoric optimism and it is sort of dangerous as well because it, it is this feeling that you can take on the world and sometimes it get, you're too positive and there can be really bad consequences from that too. In fact, maybe that's even the harder thing to deal with because with de- depression Uh, sometimes some people deal with depression by playing things a little safer. You shut down. You don't take the risks that you want to. But when he was going through his bouts of mania, he, you know, you actually think you can do way more than you might actually reasonably be able to do. You might become a risk taker or something. Um, I'm not a person that likes to go around collecting different disorders, um so i don't necessarily think that i have that at all um i know i am depressed uh but i think people definitely think that some of my positive ideas are ridiculous and i I'm, pro- I'm probably just a person that doesn't have realistic expectations of goals and my abilities right and like i wrote one story and decided hey I'm going to start a whole book publishing company. And that is one of the things that while I've been on the, uh, been on break for the last number of months, I am intent on getting that going. So Connie, I'm going to be reaching out very soon. Uh, I don't think you actually listen to my podcast, but I will have you back on this to talk about it. And we will get our plans going again as soon as I reconnect. Cause I know I haven't talked to you. In a very long time, uh, and I owe you that. If you don't hate me yet, I hope you don't. Okay, now we we have a a lot of things that I was going to cover this week that are all over the place. Um, but one of the things that I was I think is so interesting is why does it take uh, Patrick and Tiffany? so long to fall in love. Like let's, let's, let's take the writing out of the equation for a second. Of course it's got to take two hours. It's a movie. It needs conflict. If you have the characters get together at the beginning of the film, uh, then you don't have a story you need to tell. Um, one of the reasons I think I like this is because they're crazy and their, their, their mental problems are part of the conflict that keeps them from just identifying each other as loving each other. I have questions about where in the story they fall in love with one another. But I want to devote a whole episode, at least an episode, I've mentioned this before, discussing that and discussing that with several other people who I've talked to who have different varying opinions on when that happens. But let's get into the why that happens. Uh, because that is a true thing that happens, too. It literally happens to everybody. I have a very hard time with that. There's, there's been many times throughout my, my life. I used to go on the road with my buddy, Nick Cassano, who was on some of the two-part early episodes, I think maybe episodes three and four of the Silver Linings Playcast, maybe later. Uh, he used to go on the road with me. And years ago probably four or five years ago. And he used to tell me, uh, because I always thought I'm not very good at talking to women. I, I'm never in relationships. And he, he would be like, dude, every single time you go to a show, there's been, there's been women that have wanted to talk to you or, you know, hang out after the show and you've totally missed all the signals. Um, and he, he would tell me that uh, usually, after the show and we'd go back to the hotel and then we'd laugh and be like, oh, Jamie, you're so ridiculous. You miss signals. You do. Now, there I've done uh, a lot of soul searching over my life and analysis of, of the different things I've done that why I miss signals. This let, let me tie this back really quick to something I was talking about, why I hated the book and movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and why this podcast is not about either that book or movie. Um, I have always been scared since I was very, very little about uh, being basically committed in insane asylums. since I was little tiny. I don't know why. I've had a very irrational fear of that. I say irrational. I think it uh, it, it was irrational because I didn't understand at the time. But as I've grown older and lived my life, I've sort of been able to articulate why that was such a fear for me when I was little. And that is because I am a person that does not respond to stimuli in, in the normal way that most people would. I'm not calling myself special this way at all. Uh, this basically it, it's, it has to do with how you behave socially and a, a wonderful book that I read last year on the road that talks about this was the book talking to strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. Now, if you're not familiar who Malcolm Gladwell is, he is a nonfiction writer, journalist and public speaker. He was born in Farham, Hampshire, England, Farham, Farrah, Hampshire, England. In 1963, he moved to Canada with his family where he spent most of his early life. Uh, from 1987 to 1996, he covered business and science for the Washington Post. And he has written a number of books that he got very famous for. His first five books were all New York Times bestseller. Starting with 2000, uh, he wrote a book called The Tipping Point. 2005, blink. 2008, outliers. Um, he, he wrote a couple more in there, but then the 2019 talking to strangers is the one that I want to bring up. Like I said, if you're not familiar with Malcolm Gladwell, you still might've heard he proposed a theory in his 2005 book blink where he popularized this theory, uh, called the 10,000 hour theory. And, and his idea was basically that it takes 10,000 hours of practicing a skill to become a master of it. Now, I don't know, really, it's been a long time since I read that book, whether he was talking about it takes 10,000 hours. Uh, Everybody that's a master of their craft has spent 10,000 hours on that craft, or if it meant if you do anything for 10,000 hours, you will become a master of that. Now, let's give a little perspective to who Malcolm Gladwell is. Uh, first because he's a little bit controversial as a writer and a journalist like this, right? So a lot of people have a problem with Malcolm Gladwell because they say he sort of, he doesn't do enough research for the topics that he talks about. I think a really important thing to understand about Malcolm Gladwell, if you read his books, I love them. I think he has an awesome podcast and he writes great articles and I watched part of his masterclass on writing. The, the thing I find so interesting about him is he's a nonfiction writer and he writes these things that are sort of pseudoscience. He proposes theories. They're sort of about, uh, society and perspective. Um, they sound very sciencey because he does some research and he'll quote studies and he'll, he'll basically make researched opinions on things. Now, he generally gets criticized a lot because he, he's not really doing a full scientific treatment of these things, as you'll see when I dissect one of his his studies in a second. The thing I think is very important about Malcolm Gladwell is to understand the way, the way I take him is he is a storyteller. He is a nonfiction writer-storyteller. So he is proposing these different theories and stuff, but his, his focus is really on like telling the story of these facts and then making assumptions based on them. If you read them, I don't think he is really overhanded with, with being an authority on anything he's talking about, like talking to strangers. There's a lot of criticism you can find about it on the internet and different reviews, but I feel like he was, he, he really gives a very fair perspective of, like, based on some of these things I've heard, this might make sense as a result or reason. I don't think he comes off as this pretentious person saying, like, I've studied these things, which makes this a certain outcome and should be assumed. His books are really about just looking at the world different ways based on some information. it's sort of this great balance I think in his writing of it's like talking to a friend that's very, very smart because he's familiar with a lot of things and can draw on that information. But I don't think they should be taken as scientific gospel in any case. And I don't think he ever portrays them that way. So I think a lot of the criticisms are very unfair against him. The books are, are a lot of fun and whether, uh, the results of his his conclusions are you know, scientifically viable or not, I don't think is so much of the point as that he is just saying there is a different way to look at these things. Now, the the thing I want to talk about briefly is the 10,000-hour theory. This is the one that people love to rip apart because it is also the one that I think is most popular popular thing that he has proposed. Uh, you can hear it cited all over the place, but if you look up 10,000 hour, 10,000 hour theory, um, there is a myriad of articles just trying to disprove it and taking so much pleasure in ripping it apart, which is fair. I'm. It's been a long time since I read it. Like I said, I don't remember if he's asserting it as, and this is, this would be a big difference if you look at everybody and if you say everybody that is a master of their craft has spent at least 10,000 hours doing their practicing and that probably makes them masters at what they do, that's one thing. And I think logically that, that, that would be a pretty good assumption to make, even if it's not scientifically factual. That is very different from saying if I do something for 10,000 hours, I will become a master of it. Every article that I've read that's that's tearing apart his 10,000-hour theory is basically saying there's other factors than the amount of hours spent practicing to make you good at something or not, which I think is fair. That is a fair criticism, except for the fact that I don't think he was saying that it's 10,000 hours automatically. I think he was just uh, saying that, that is a common thing amongst people that are masters. I don't know. I didn't read the whole book reread the whole book in time just for this little thing. But, uh, one, uh, let's go into where he devised that theory from his, his theory was actually comes from reading a 1993 study from psychological review by, by, uh, there's three different people, Erickson, cramp and Tesh Romer. And they stated that the world's top violinists had all accumulated 10,000 hours over their lifetime and they surpassed the skills of those who had not spent 10,000 hours. Now, like I said, uh, there there's a million people that have discounted this as a a rule. Uh if and you can look them up, uh, Forbes magazine has had articles discounting his 10,000 hour theory, uh the BBC news and even uh one of the co-authors of the original study came out with uh, his own statements that basically that was not the um, the results of what they were proposing in the psychological study. They were not trying to say that, that 10,000 hours made you a master. Uh, the co-author Anders Ericsson actually says that um, if you look at the violinists who did spend 10,000 hours... Uh, at practicing violin and some of the ones that had not, that the skill level was negligible from a scientific perspective. N- that's fair. We don't know. But, I, you know, I like to think that putting 10,000 hours into something is helpful. One of the interesting breakdowns from a Business Insider article is that it, it depends on what those 10,000 hours is for there's the the big thing they were saying is if it's something like uh, the skill of how to play a game, a sport, or, or something, that 10,000 hours is a much more consistent indicator of how good you're going to be at that because the rules don't change. But if you put 10,000 hours into s- to, to a field that is always evolving itself, such as if you spend 10,000 hours studying how to make a certain kind of music by the time you're at the other end of your 10,000 hours music might have changed so you might not necessarily be a master of music if i got really into uh you know i don't know like I, w- I was a a grunge band if i was in the in the 90s or something and i put 10,000 hours into that now let's look at what music is like in 2020 uh, I would not necessarily be a master of a different kind of music now. I don't know. Uh, there is a a lot of other things to take into consideration. He's just throwing out the theory, and he just writes the story to give you some perspective on how to think of things. And I think they're interesting. There's a really ep- interesting episode that is somewhat related uh, on, on different... Um, different topic i brought this podcast up in i think my last podcast where i was talking about some of my favorite podcasts on the art of manliness podcast episode 512 entitled why generalists triumph in a specialized world there's a big discussion and they break down sort of the importance of practicing and they say that there's there's two models uh they they take the the sports stars tiger woods and roger Federer. And they talk about how Tiger Woods was trained to play golf since he was a young boy. And that is the only thing he's learned to do. And he's really good at golf. And that worked for him. And as Americans, Western society, we are sort of obsessed with this idea about learn something and learn to do that thing very, very well. The Art of Manliness podcast, though, sort of puts out this point that that Tiger Woods is actually far more of an anomaly in this world than we like to admit as Westerners. Now, Roger Federer, who is a tennis star, grew up playing all sorts of different sports. And then he sort of focused on tennis and became very, very good. And they talk about how most of the people that are actually experts in their different fields uh, benefited greatly from learning different skills which is sort of in contrast to that idea you have to spend 10,000 hours doing one specific thing. Now, I was saying all that because there was something totally different I wanted to talk about Malcolm Gladwell and that was his book Talking to Strangers where he he is talking about this theory, right? That the reason we have a hard time talking to different different kinds of people or picking up signals, understanding when people are being honest or telling the truth. Is that there is this assumption that those people uh, communicate, that is, give and receive information the same way we all do ourselves. Now, one of the the reasons that this is that I loved this book was because it was talking to I felt exactly people like me, justifying. Myself because sometimes I respond to things in the opposite way from what you would generally expect somebody to respond to something. If you receive a sad stimuli, will you respond with crying or will you respond with laughing? Most people would respond with crying. So when somebody is responding with laughter to something sad, that does not mean that they are, are lying or being disingenuous with their response, but somebody that interprets sad stimuli uh, and is a crier themselves will have a hard time understanding that other person that responds with laughter, and vice versa. The the general. Um, Theory from the book is that we are very good at understanding people that respond to things similar to ourselves, but we are incredibly bad at uh, communicating with people that respond to things different from ourselves. So instead of just going to a person and trying to understand them from how they respond to things, we first need to understand what kind of person this is that we are communicating with. Like everybody has people that they know specifically well. We all have friends or people that we're very close to family members or people we've been in relationships with that might not respond to things in the typical way that that, that the general public would, that numeric that statistically the majority of people would. And so an outsider who doesn't know that person might not trust that the person who responds differently more more so. And they were, they were saying that this is an incredibly powerful psychological phenomenon that, that um, like when an FBI profiler is, is profiling or interrogating a criminal, if that criminal responds with normal normal reactions like oh I did something bad that makes me sad I did something good that makes me happy Uh, then they will be able to tell if that person is lying better than you or I because they are trained to to understand the different cues and body language and read that and they can break down the integrity of a of a normal person but if that person they are interrogating responds differently the opposite like this other kind of person i was talking about who responds to stimuli contrary to the general public the experienced profiler will be no more accurate than you or i who so they're saying the we only are accurate at, at reading people that are like ourselves. We are completely uh, n- not accurate when we are trying to decipher the cues of somebody else. And so we have to learn about those people. And and once you do, then you can learn how to account for those differences. So that is one of the reasons why I, um, I always get worried about being judged by, you know, what, let's call quote unquote normal people because i often react differently um to emotional stimuli than what i think is is the normally accepted or expected uh response to people and one, a great example is that there's there's a whole bunch of songs and and tv shows that it's like oh this might be a sad song but it actually makes me really happy or something uh one of greatest examples. One of my favorite songs. I think this is a this is a song that always makes me happy. Like I think, I think that thematically, it's supposed to be like a breakup song, but it just hits me very positively. Right? Okay. So it's called uh, "Somewhere in My Car" by Keith Urban, and if you listen to the lyrics. Okay, so it's, it's about a guy, and, and he, he broke up, but he's having these memories of, of this woman that he's still in love with, uh, but, but just like, let's, I'm, I'm not a big lyric person, I mostly listen to the, the music part too, but from the very beginning of the song, it sort of hits me as happy, um, I don't know. I've just always liked it and it's always brought a smile to my face. Listen to the very beginning of the song. I'm not a super educated person on music about knowing like the difference between major or minor. I mean, I can, di- uh, I, 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 know things can sound sort of saddish because like I might use different things for editing or I know they're used in different moments, but to me, this sound, song always hits really happy. And I think and it's just because of the little riff in the beginning, right? Like that's, that's really bouncy to me I understand the keys probably minor I don't you know, know for a fact it is uh, if you know what it is like so it's technically supposed to be sad but I really like it um, the, it can go the other way too uh, but sometimes they're actually written that way where they are playing on the fact that the general public will think that it is a fun song and is actually very dark lyrically which is not completely what I'm talking about because I'm talking more about like whether it makes me happy or not which can be unrelated to to the actual lyrics and theme but a a great example of this is the community theme song by the 88 not to be confused by the crazy 88 no uh, but the 88 wrote a song at least it was here and it is used as the theme song to the show community right and give it a listen real quick All right, and if you're not, if you couldn't understand the uh, lyrics of it, uh, it's like one. Tell me, that is a bouncy song. It is a fun, happy song, right? And it is the theme song to a very funny show that I absolutely love, Community, by Dan Harmon. But the lyrics are: Give me some rope, tie me to dream, give me the hope to run out of steam. Somebody said it can be here. We could be roped up, tied up, dead in a year. I can't count the reasons why I should stay one by one. They all just fade away. Now that's part of a longer song too. And if you do an analysis of the actual full song, uh, I'll, this is song is used as an example on a lot of like BuzzFeed type of articles about songs that sound happy but actually have a dark message. Uh, if you look at the whole song in context, I actually think the message is pretty positive because it is sort of about like, oh, it's this person who is super depressed. Uh, give me some rope. Uh, you know, oh, I have no reason to be here. The whole song then says, but basically they're in love with somebody and they're staying alive for that person, which... Um, you, I mean, you could say it's depressing because, you know, overall it is sad that somebody would be that depressed and, and need to stay alive for somebody because of love. But, uh, I just, I just think now you're getting into, to tearing apart, uh, the, the depressiveness of life itself. But if you can find that thing to keep you alive, it's actually very positive positive. Basically, that goes back to Pat's hole. If you if you try everything as hard as you can and give it a shot, you have an opportunity, a shot at a silver lining. You know, um, I love watching YouTube videos breaking down and analyzing some of my different favorite TV shows because I I'm always late to the party. I always get into shows way after they're on the air and stuff. So sometimes I. I miss out on having those conversations with people, different communities that are fans of the different shows. So I have to watch a lot of YouTube videos to sort of make up for the, oh, I want to talk about this show, but nobody's cared about this show in 15 years or something. So one of the funny things is that uh, so many of the shows that I find that I really like often have these very existential readings to them. Uh, some, of, uh, especially especially the cartoons. I don't do this on purpose. Like I'm not ever looking for existentially philosophical or depressing shows when I'm looking for shows. I just happen to what I what I turn on and end up actually watching and finishing. Going back, typically has deep existentialism themes, which is why I picked a quote by Soren Kierkegaard to start this whole podcast off. I'm a big fan of existentialist philosophy, sort of reading it, and um, I, so I'm not, I'm, I'm sounding really pretentious right now, really not that smart, and I don't read that much of it, I'm just saying when I do read philosophy, big fan of Soren Kierkegaard. So if you're not familiar with what existentialism is, uh, existentialism is a form of philosophical inquiry that explores the problems of human existence and centers on the lived experience of the thinking, feeling, and acting individual. In the view of the existentialist, the individual's starting point has been called the existential angst, or variable existential attitude dread, or a sense of disorientation, confusion, or anxiety in the face of an apparent meaningless or absurd world. Now, basically what this means is is when you have this realization, it's like waking up in the world and being like, oh my goodness, what does this all mean? Maybe nothing. Existentialism is this beautiful investigation into the meaning of the world and basically finding it's meaningless. And yet, the result doesn't have to be as depressing as what I just said Sounds like in some ways. And I I believe from my poor understanding of Kierkegaard, what his conclusion was is, yeah, so everything means nothing in some ways. That's beautiful because that's giving you the opportunity to look at this like a blank canvas and saying, we give the meaning to this blank canvas. Yes, yes, nothing means anything. So that should make everything you do, every moment you you are and every feeling you feel have all that more significance. That is the purpose. But it really it really seeks to address this sort of dread that most people have when they first have that realization that nothing means anything. And if we stop at that point, th- that can be very terrifying. You're like, "Oh my goodness, Uh, the, everything is just pain and meaninglessness and suffering and it, it can be, that's where I'm stuck a lot of the time, but it's why I like to read and watch existentialist stuff because it's really an attempt to rationalize existence to get past that too. That's, that's one of the goals that you can find from that. So some of my, some of my favorite things is funny. These are all cartoons too, but they uh, they all have very, very heavy existentialist themes. Um, BoJack Horseman, Rick and Morty, uh, the anime Fate Zero, and also the anime Neon Genesis Evangelion. I don't watch a lot of anime. I realize saying two of them makes it sound like I, you know, and also because I'm an Asian person, uh, but um, now, now, anime tends to to have a lot of existentialist themes too, just because I think there is sort of uh, an Eastern draw to that way to rationalize the world. Very interesting perspective that I I got when I was in film school learning about uh, like J- Japan uh, and why they make so many monster movies. Right, so the the film Godzilla was sort of their resp- their response to the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki during World War II. Sort of the two biggest uh, events, uh, the most devastating, just physically violent and destructive uh, events in human history. Where you have two cities that are just absolutely destroyed to a degree that humanity has never seen before and hopefully will never see again. If you experience something like that in your lifetime, that can be absolutely devastating just in a national level. That was a trauma that the whole country, if not the, the world in some ways was reeling from. So where does entertainment come in from that point? Entertainment often plays a role of trying to help explain these things to society that we collectively feel, but we cannot articulate ourselves. So what did they do? They created a monster, Godzilla, who is a product of nuclear energy. And what does he do? He destroys Japan. They have nationally had this obsession with making movies that really personify their fear of having their cities destroyed by technology. The anime that I was talking about, Neon Genesis Evangelion, that was a a thing I discovered in high school. It's about big monsters uh, and robots fighting, and they destroy the city. You can see that that is a product of who they are collectively culturally so silver linings playbook absolutely absolutely an american existentialist film if you go to david o russell who is the director of silver linings playbook his 2004 film i heart huckabees uh is is a total existential exploration film Um, but you have this movie silver linings playbook that is basically this guy, uh, is experiencing a brand new birth. He gets out of where he was confined into a world that he does not recognize. If you read the book, he's having memory losses. He does not know, uh, that the sports venue, um, you know, that the, uh, the, the stadium has moved. He doesn't know the athletes. He doesn't know that his ex-wife is, you know, never going to talk to him again or see him. And he's trying to put his life back together and figure out who he is. He has these mental problems. Maybe he's bipolar. Maybe he's not. Maybe he's depressed. He might have TBI, PTSD. He's trying to figure out who he is. And he makes this friend, Tiffany. We will go into her problems in a whole separate episode because we're getting close to, to where we got to finish up with this one. But it's so fascinating and coincidental to me that there was nothing about Silver Linings Playbook that when I sat down and I said, "Oh, I really, I love movies with existential themes," I just watched a million times, and then if you look back at it, you realize, oh, there are very strong existential themes in this movie. Pat is completely trying to find, uh, you know, he brings up the uh, farewell to arms. Is everything sad? Can we create a silver lining in a chaotic world where happiness does not exist? Right? He's looking for it. He tries to find it. I, I don't know. Is this a happy movie or a sad movie? Um, we will get into that. We're about at the end, but I spent a lot of time doing some other music clips. So I just want to talk about those really quickly, even if they don't really tie in and it, it's too bad because we were just getting to the super uh, interesting part of this discussion where I was going to tie into the whole thing about, I have problems talking to people because I don't know how to interpret what other people are experiencing all the time. And I'm always afraid that people aren't going to understand me. And I can often feel very alone because I can, um, I know what to say to people to get the reaction that is appropriate to them. But if I am just being myself, I feel like I very rarely, um, behave in ways that make other people comfortable. And that's why I'm often very scared to connect to a lot of people in different ways. A lot of this is, is clear in my reaction to things that are happy or sad. And let's, so let's talk really quick about, um, some other songs that I think where I'm sort of backwards on how they make me feel versus how, uh, I probably am supposed to feel. About them, right? So, everybody will probably recognize this. This is one of the songs that I think uh, makes me happy every single time I hear it. Head, your- so, I, I know <laughs> that that is actually like it technically. Uh, It is a sad song because it is about violence in Ireland Uh, and it should not be a thing that brings a smile to my face, but I like the way it sounds. And I mean, besides the fact that I absolutely loved her, she was the best, Uh, Super Miss Dolores wish she was still here. But then, okay, so they have another song, which is probably a lot lighter, I think it was actually used in the commercials for Dawson's Creek uh, if I'm remembering the show correctly Um, yes and I am old enough that I remember those commercials even though I I was a little too young to actually watch it actively but if you remember um, this (laughs) That, that song makes me way sadder. Now, I'm not saying like it makes me, um, I don't think it's a sad song, but it just, if if, if I'm going to say, if you say, how does that musically hit me? That definitely evokes um, just those uh, cry muscles slightly more. I'm not saying I'm not going to sit around and cry listening to that music, uh, but again, yeah, elicits a, a much stronger Sad emotional reaction even though I think I musically I have those backwards um here's another one that I think this makes me very happy you've forgotten how it started close your eyes think of all the bubbles of love we made Uh, that's big mistake by Natalie and And again, like so, so maybe, maybe my problem is I don't understand what is supposed to make me happy. That's a song that makes me happy, even though it's probably thematically another sort of more, uh, you know, downer song. I don't actually know. Well, um, so maybe I'm misinterpreting my brain's miswired to, uh, take take intensity of <laughs> music to mean happy. Like the louder and more high energy pacing the 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 instrumentation is, I think that's happy. And the smoother, normally more sweet sounds, um I interpret as sad and associate with crying, even though I'm probably totally wrong technically. Now let's listen to the absolute Uh, happiest song there is in the world. If you've listened to previous episodes, you know why that's probably the most tragic song of my whole life. And yet, uh, it is a song that makes me happy, even though I'm embarrassed to hear it or play it. Uh, and that is probably because, um, I, one, I don't know what it's, well, I do kind of know what it's about. I've been told, uh, but it's, um, it's actually been one of the most popular songs of all time. I know it's in a weird way of like, it's not the greatest song of all time, but as far as consistency, I'm just, and I'm going off, I am going off of like scientific charts, right? It has just technically been on charts, uh, mathematically higher, longer, more consistently than almost anything. Um, but yeah, uh, this is, we, we've got to wrap this up because this has actually ended up being the longest episode I've ever had of this, but I think it's just because we actually had something to talk about this week. Um, some of the things I'd love to hear from you guys. I would love to know uh, when you are sad, what are some things you like to experience? What What do you like to do? watch listen to um like i said my favorite uh it's um definitely definitely uh the last couple breakups i went through i was definitely listening to uh the keith urban song which is probably a breakup song but uh, you know what it's not fair because i listen to that song all the time anyway i um also uh you know the number one sad song that I makes me happy. That's right. Uh, Taylor Swift's red album has gotten me through so much in my life. Um, but yeah, what are some of your favorite sad movies to watch when you were sad or happy movies to watch when you were happy? I got the recommendation this week. Before the devil knows you're dead. One of my good friends told me that that was guaranteed to make me cry. I watched it and I have to say, um, little disappointed. It it was all right. It was no Manchester by the sea. Also, uh, Manchester by the sea was, probably one of the saddest movies they've ever seen, but I did not realize it at the time because I guess I fell asleep during an incredibly important part in the middle, which is where all the sad things happened. So the impact I had when I woke up and finished the film was, Oh, that was, that was a movie. And then I was later told during a conversation what I had missed. and I was like, Oh wow. Uh, that makes everything, make a lot more sense so anyway yeah let me know what you think uh about what you like to do watch and listen to when you're sad also as always let me know when you think pat fell in love with tiffany let me know when you think tiffany fell in love with pat and finally let me know what you think pat whispered in his ex-wife Nikki's ear at the end of the movie silver linings playbook and uh thank you guys for tuning in we will see you guys down the road and until then excelsior